Welcome to the Ether Podcast. I am Laura Thurston Goodrow, and I'm joined today by Dr. Peter Layton, author of Systematizing Supply Chain Warfare in our summer 2023 issue. Dr. Layton is a visiting fellow at the Griffith Asia Institute, Griffith University, a Royal United Services Institute Associate Fellow, and a fellow at the Australian Security Leaders Climate Group. He has extensive aviation and defense experience, including flying fast jets and maritime patrol, force development, major equipment projects, and as a defense attache. For his work at the Pentagon on force structure matters, he was awarded the U.S. Secretary of Defense's Exceptional Public Service Medal. Dr. Layton has taught on the topic of grand strategy at the Eisenhower School for National Security and Resource Strategy, U.S. National Defense University. He has also undertaken a fellowship at the European University Institute in Fiesole, Italy. Dr. Layton is published internationally and is the author of the book Grand Strategy. He's co-authoring a new book, Warfare in the Robotic Age, to be published in early 2024. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Hi, glad to be here. So first, can you tell us a little bit about your interest in the subject matter? Okay, so in the last sort of three or four years, there's been some big changes that have uh, reshaped our thinking about future air power. The first is the possible return of big power wars using conventional forces. This is right back to the early days of air power. For most of the Cold War, it was assumed the big war would last one to two weeks before it went nuclear and everything was all over. Now the thinking is very different. People now see major wars as being enduring or protracted, perhaps lasting several years. So a possible rerun of World War I or of World War II. Secondly, air power may be becoming affordable again with the rise of uncrewed air vehicles, which with AI looks fair to return mass to our thinking. Third, air power is now heterogeneous, joining crewed aircraft and now uncrewed vehicles, cruise missiles, long-range glide weapons, rockets and missiles, and surface-to-air missiles. And lastly, much of this is playing out before our eyes in the Ukraine. It's not fantasy fiction anymore. It's the real world. It might be back to the future in terms of major war, but crucially, when we start talking about supply chain stuff, the target set has changed a lot as well. The concept of logistics has advanced as the business of of supplying armies has changed since early in the last century. For most of the last century, businesses sought to keep their activities in-house and they were integrated vertically so they could firmly control all aspects of their industrial processes. But in the 1990s, all of this changed. A rapidly increasing number of companies started to shift to being integrated on a horizontal plane, using extensive outsourcing and keeping only core functions in-house. In shifting to horizontal integration with its sideways cross-company, cross-continent flow of materials and resources, the supply chain term now dominates the uh, lexicon. The logistics term is now mainly for uh, within an organisation. So modern supply chain today, vast, complex, global, and best understood using a systems outlook rather than the reductionist ones that was favoured by those earlier air power thinkers of the first half of the 20th century. These supply chains are systems with a purpose that have a certain operating logic, which in itself creates some sensitivities and vulnerabilities. So combining those sort of two bits, if you like, that air power thinking has changed, but our target sets changed as well, sort of made me think, if air power in its early days was big in attacking supply lines, how would we do this this time round in the 21st century? Interesting. You then talk about those going to the 20th century air power, talking about the three dominant theories, interdiction, industrial web, and economic warfare. Can you talk about that a little bit in terms of how that applies? Yeah. So when we sort of start thinking about supply chain warfare 
we, we look back to those sort of early days of the first half of the 20th century, and early air power thinkers gave this a lot of thought. Um, the interdiction part of it, of course, dates back as far as uh, World War One. In the latter stages of World War One, Hugh Trenchard spoke about an air campaign that focused on the key targets of railways, railroad marshalling yards, bridges, supply depots and road networks that moved the men and the materiel to the front lines. Interdiction was then developed further by another Brit, Royal Air Force thinker John Slesser, and he argued that air power could seal off an enemy's forces, strangling them into capitulation. In this, Slesser preferred supply interdiction of material and equipment over force interdiction, and these days we call force interdiction is uh, battlefield air interdiction. So interdiction campaigns are dynamic and to be effective rely on the enemy forces being under pressure and needing continuous resupply to survive. This resupply is then targeted. Now, in the Pacific theatre during World War II, interdiction was mainly maritime. Of course, obviously, it's a lot more than just land warfare. In the Pacific theatre, Japanese troops, ships and merchant vessels were continually sunk, isolating the Japanese army units in the islands and making them ineffective. In modern wars, interdiction campaigns have been shaped by sanctuaries where attacks on the adversary cannot be made. These sanctuaries and the friendly forces rules of engagements can be critical in assessing the prospects for interdiction success. Such factors reinforce that air interdiction, the activities of service forces, and today, of course, friendly cyber war uh, measures need to be integrated to create dilemmas for the enemy in terms of space and time. And adversary must be denied the ability to respond sufficiently quickly to friendly actions. If that's interdiction and its long history, in the 1930s, a different concept turned up. It was a concept developed concerning attacking adversary supply systems rather than supply lines. The US Army Air Corps Tactical School there in Alabama proposed attacking a nation's industrial web. This was not an indiscriminate attack, but rather a carefully and prudently focused one against key nodes that would, so they thought, unravel the intricate web of a modern industrial economy. The idea was that the economic structure of a modern, highly industrialised nation was characterised by a great degree of interdependence of its various elements. Certain of these elements are vital to the continued functioning of the modern nation. If one of these elements is destroyed, the whole economic machine ceases to function. And against a highly industrialised nation, such actions may produce immediate and decisive results. However, it's important not to view the adversary as they did perhaps as a static set of targets. These industries are constantly changing in response to demand and supply factors. A political economist, Mancor Olsen, looked at the World War II industrial web attacks on Germany. and He found attacks on critical industries would not usually bring strategic success, as the adversary could often substitute another product and fill the gaps made. He emphasised that supply chain disruption was less effective in wealthy economies as most commodities had many non-essential uses, allowing rationing to provide workarounds. It's not the type of good, but the type of use that distinguished a necessity from a luxury. Lastly, the third one, economic warfare. So again, in that interwar period, and just before the Second World War in 1939, the UK created a Ministry for Economic Warfare. Then that was later to be matched in the United States by the Board of Economic Warfare. The aim of economic warfare is to disorganise the enemy's economy as to prevent them from carrying on the war. As we all know, economies are very complex systems composed of a number of infrastructure elements interconnected in a myriad of ways, including electrical grids, petrol and oil distribution networks and telecommunication systems. As a result of this connectivity, an attack on one infrastructure element will influence the others to varying amounts. When targeting an economy, 
this connectivity and its intrinsic downstream effects can be leveraged. Conceptually, this differs from attacking a state's military forces. And while economic warfare may overlap with such attacks, it can also be waged independently, as sanctions used in the interwar period, and indeed more recently, demonstrate. In this, it's misleading to consider a national economy as rigid and unchanging. Instead, adjustment to change is the norm. Using an analogy, Olson again observed that it'd be much better to compare an economy with a tree, which can grow a new branch when an old one is removed, than to a building, which will collapse if part of its foundation is destroyed. Economists have long been familiar with creating tactical supply problems for the adversary, but the opportunity presented by air power in World War II to create a strategic supply problem for the enemy was new and required some rethinking. Strategic supply involves the capacity of a nation's entire economy to supply its military forces and continue the war. In a tactical supply situation, no quantity of extra supplies of the wrong kind can be substituted for the missing items. In contrast, in a strategic supply situation, most of what is missing can be replaced, provided that a nation is willing and able to substitute enough production of other things to get it. To get around this, a major bottleneck of the overall economic system should be destroyed, with further attacks chosen that close off the possibilities of substitution. In such a manner, at least in theory, a national economy may be paralysed. At its core, though, economic warfare is a cumulative strategy, as Wiley spoke about years and years ago, where small gains each day add up. So then we move to the 21st century and supply chains. So I first want to have you talk about the concept of contemporary supply chains as restricted complexity systems. Um, I think your observation that these systems are systems of intense interaction is apt. Okay. So when we start thinking about systems thinking, and this is one of the points that interested me in this entire area, I suppose, is that systems thinking is often spoken about, has been sort of talked about as a bit of a holy grail way of thinking for about the last 30 or 40 years. And then we talk about it, we don't necessarily apply it, and we have trouble moving it into the real world, if you like, and about how does this actually work for me? And I think to a point, there's a tendency to think of just just two types of systems, complicated systems and complex adaptive systems. So complicated systems are, are like, if you like, clockwork kind of devices. The key characteristics of a complicated systems are they are closed, they work in a linear fashion, and they function under a centralised authority. They're sort of rather military there, actually. In sharp contrast, complex adaptive systems are open, non-linear, and they organise themselves. And they're two quite different viewpoints. A problem in that is that we can impose either of these two models on how we understand a real-world system rather than look first and see what kind of system it is. And these days, everyone loves complex adaptive systems, so everyone sort of goes down that way first without sort of thinking about whether that's actually uh, what the system is. Supply chains lie somewhere between the two extremes of a complicated system and a complex adaptive system. The modern supply chain, conceptually speaking, runs from the raw materials to the component manufacturers to the equipment final assembly location then across air, sea, or land transportation linkages into the armed forces logistic support organisations, and finally and lastly, to the war fighting units. Such supply systems are systems with a purpose, as said before, that have a certain operating logic, and this creates some sensitivity and vulnerabilities. So these modern supply chains are vast, complex, global, and best understood using a systems viewpoint rather than the reductionist one favoured by those early air power thinkers. They certainly thought about supplies in a very much a clockwork-driven method. 
Accordingly, supply chains may be usefully classified, as I think at least, as restricted complexity systems. Now, that's sort of in the middle there, as I said, between complicated and uh, complex adaptive systems. Restricted complexity systems are characterised by being semi-open, multiple causality, and dispersed authority. What do those three buzzwords mean? Semi-open is being able to draw on resources outside the system to compensate for internal disruption, but only draw on those resources that have a dual civil military function. Most modern military equipment requires specific components to operate and be repaired, and these can only come from particular supply sources. Secondly, multiple causality, in that supply solutions may come from multiple sources and through multiple pathways. Thirdly, dispersed authority, as there is no single directing authority. Instead, the nodes in the supply chain communicate and coordinate amongst themselves to ensure the the inputs they need are received when the node needs them, and then the outputs are pushed into the supply chain when requested by other nodes. This means, of course, that a supply chain has some, in this restricted complexity system, has some inherent problems. The first is they can be a bit brittle. Uh, They can be fragile because it arises from the opaqueness to to most of the entities involved in it. The presence of single points of failure and a high degree of complexity and interconnectedness. And we saw a few of those problems play out, of course, during the pandemic, where supply chains broke down or stalled because of relatively simple problems. However, the more complex the supply chain, the greater the possibility that it might fail, even to one or more of its functions. Still, this is only a possibility. As we spoke about before during World War II, product substitutions and workarounds may be viable. The second problem is today's supply chain geographic spread, which is often worldwide. Supply chains can then be subject to distant, unexpected events, uh, such as earthquakes and pandemics and tidal waves, etc., or geopolitical tensions, such as with China, as is playing out with critical minerals now. And they can quickly create outsized impacts. The third problem could be a lack of vendor diversity. Products that require materials from a certain region or a single source are at greater risk of disruption. A fourth issue is limited transparency. The companies involved rarely understand the full scope of their supply chain. Supply chains are very complicated, especially for, say, modern military aircraft. And so the companies can have trouble taking early corrective action to effectively remedy looming problems. Contingency planning can be actually particularly difficult. And a fifth information appropriate for our cyber age is that information feedback in the system is often slow relative to the rate of changes occurring in the system. Each supply chain has a specific process to achieve the desired output. If disruptions happen too quickly for the control mechanism to keep up, outputs will markedly fluctuate as the system fractures and becomes internally disorganised. You can see from that that we're now very definitely moved on from the reductionist models into systems thinking where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And of course, supply chain warfare tries to turn that on its head and make the whole less than the sum of its parts. So that's what we get to and how to plan against that. You write in the article, the target rather than the means of attack or the context forms the core of the discussion. You kind of bring the threads together and considering elements of 20th century air power as they relate to supply chain warfare campaign planning at the three levels, operational, strategic and grand strategic levels of warfare. I go back to the thing that you've mentioned a couple of times now that supply chains are systems with a purpose that have a certain operating logic, which in itself creates sensitivities and vulnerabilities. So how do we get at this? What what are your recommendations? I know you mentioned artificial intelligence, machine learning, additive manufacturing, some of the 
parts and pieces of this, but tell us about how we get at supply chain warfare campaign planning. Well, if we think back to the early days of air power thinking, the reductionist approaches are certainly out of favour. So I reverse a framework that was first conceptualised by Don Nella Meadows about 20 years ago. And she wrote some great stuff about how to improve the performance of the systems. So I turn that on its head and I seek instead ways to make the system fail. I said, this is what first got me interested in this was the idea that a system is a system. And so you could leverage off particular important parts of the system. And if you like, leverage off how the system works to make the system fail. It's not just the attacks that will actually stop things working, but the system will work against itself. Now, supply chain networks are social technical systems with human and non-human elements, a bit like warfare in itself. Suppliers, manufacturers, retailers and customers work together through partnerships or alliances, each with a specific systemic function. An environment of intense interaction is created driven by exchanges of material, financial and informational resources, including knowledge. And of course, There's also a vertical dimension to all this, as supply chains usually have different tiers. So they're not just flat plane, if you like. There's also tier one, tier two, tier three, and many tiers under that. Where air power might be applied varies with the objectives of the particular campaign. At the operational level of war, supply chain warfare might focus on supporting the activities of other friendly military forces. This might draw on interdiction thinking and be phrased as actions to divert, disrupt, delay or destroy an adversary's military capabilities as they seek to gain their objectives. In the modern era, though, the focus is not on supporting just land forces, as in some World War II campaigns, but rather supporting and acting across all domains, air, sea, land, space and, I suppose, cyber. Yet as with traditional interdiction, supporting friendly forces in this way relies on the adversary actively using up their supplies that they need to quickly replenish. If we move up to that strategic level, industrial web approaches might aim to shorten the duration of the conflict by attacking key supply chain nodes critical to particular industries supporting an adversary's armed forces. There is again a reliance on the adversary having suitable vulnerabilities that could be exploited. For example, the adversary might not be industrialised or might instead rely extensively on foreign support. And in a way, you can see that happening now with the Russians being cut off from semi conductors and so needing to uh, buy fridges and washing machines from overseas, cannibalise those and use the semiconductors to then be the brains on certain of their missile systems. Lastly, at that grand strategic level, economic warfare concepts could be drawn upon to guide disrupting the supply chains of industries necessary to sustain the adversary's national power. This is much broader than degrading just the enemy's military power, would take a lot longer to achieve would have a longer lasting impact. This objective shades into war termination in that an adversary's power might be purposefully reduced well into the post-war period. And you might say again that some sanctions uh, against the uh, against Russia during the Ukraine war aim to purposely reduce Russian power well into the post-war period as well. Across all these three supply chain options, the generic system leverages are similar, but with the specifics bearing varying based on the objectives. The leverages of the system structure and interaction, selected stabilising buffers holding critical components and lastly, the information flows. In addition, in the interdiction case, the balancing feedback can be exploited to ensure adversary commanders keep pushing more and more supplies forward and so provide multiple high value targets and target sets for attack. 
And in the Ukraine, you can see that the interdiction attacks against bridges, supply depots and railway marshalling yards. In contrast, in the industrial web and the national economic system cases, an adversary might bring balancing feedback loops into play to try to introduce substitutes for components made unavailable because of attacks. Attention should be paid to monitoring for such systemic innovation and actions taken to negate it. As I said, systems are dynamic and this being restricted complexity system, there will certainly be substitutions, workarounds. So you need to keep monitoring the system very, very closely and be adjusting uh, what you're attacking and how you're attacking and uh, how long for. Supply systems have long been seen as suitable for air attack. As said, since really about the middle of the First World War, that's uh, over 110 years ago. Using a systems viewpoint allows an understanding of enemy supply chains and of where to attack to maximise the damage done in terms of cutting system performance and output. As I said, we're trying to leverage the system against itself. It's not just the sheer impact of the blast and fragmentation from air power's weapons systems, if you like, or even from the cyber attack, but rather causing the system to fight itself and degrade itself. The supply chain analysis is gaining increasing relevance, and this kind of warfare is gaining increasing relevance, given the return, we think, of major protracted wars, the impact of economic warfare, recent successful interdiction of Russia's combat supply lines by the Ukraine, because we can see it happening in the real world, the rise of heterogeneous air power, as I said, with whole range of stuff, uh, band systems, ballistic missiles, UAV, it just goes on and on, and the potential of affordable mass, particularly using things like AI. Air power thinkers need to reconsider supply chain warfare. You did bring up a good point, though, about the additive manufacturing. And everybody in logistics is certainly excited about 3D printing. From a logistics viewpoint, from a military viewpoint, we may now be able to print parts on the airbase. And so, if you like, the airbase might be a manufacturing centre in itself. Now, of course, it's a wonderful concept, and that's only printing some particular parts. And you have to have all the materials available at the airbase so you can actually do this, which also includes an, an uninterrupted power supply, of course, as well. But the interesting thing is, I suppose, is that moving manufacturing forward in that sense to the front line is now making supply chain warfare perhaps even more useful or more important because suddenly much more of the supply chain is actually within our reach. We spoke very early about sanctuaries during particular wars and the Ukraine war, now Russia is a sanctuary and the Ukrainians can't attack the Russian factories. But in the future, if we move the 3D printing and added manufacturing forward, into air bases and the front line, we are to a certain extent moving our manufacturing base forward and helping an adversary by uh, giving them possible targets that they uh, can attack. So additive manufacturing changes things from one viewpoint, but also returns us back to the future of war, I suppose, because those earlier concepts are still appropriate now in the 21st century using some really high-tech stuff. Yeah, it seems to be highly complicated on all sides. And and progress can create unforeseen vulnerabilities, as you just pointed out. It's really interesting. And I think our military writ large has a lot of work to do coordinating, approaching this issue. Because again, the sheer coordination of trying to do something to this complex system is not easy. And the consequences are near and 
second, third order, fourth order effects. It's a little bit mind boggling. <laughs> it certainly goes sort of on and on. But again, of course, uh, the, the modern art of wargaming is changing very, very markedly as well. And artificial intelligence and machine learning, the processing power involved in those means that wargaming and our modeling of complicated systems is now much, much better. So we don't have to think about these things perhaps using just only our human brains. We can now model this much better than we ever have previously. And you say model the unintended consequences, those first, second and third order effects. Yeah. So probably wargaming now makes this much more achievable from a conceptualization and thinking point of view. This is true. So to wrap up, uh, you get the final word. Is there anything you'd like to add? Yeah, so to return back to what I very first said, is that certainly air power thinking is changing. What we're going to use it for in the future is changing. And the world's changing around us as the age of robots turns up uh, and uh, connectivity deepens. So we have a complicated global system, but the word system reminds us that we need to start thinking about this from a systems viewpoint and how we leverage the system and make it work for us. If we haven't got very much mass or very much supplies ourselves, we have to, if you like, make the world work for us rather than us try and to change the world all by ourselves. So that's where that supply chain warfare, and we're all used to supply chains now over the last sort of three or four years, that's where supply chain warfare uh, perhaps offers us a way of thinking and a way of looking that might be useful in some future conflict. Well, that's great. And when your new book comes out, be sure to make sure we get a copy and we will review it with our- Excellent. Yeah, thank you very looking, much. We're looking forward to it. So thank you, Dr. Layton, for joining us. We really appreciate you being on the podcast and good luck on your book. Thanks a lot, Laura.